Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Seth Masters joins us now from our Bloomberg 1130 studios, as I said, the former chief investment officer, A.B. Bernstein. Great to have you with us. And uh, let's begin with uh, with this news uh, about General Electric, what it says to you about the company itself or industrials uh, in particular, what we're seeing here with this reimagining of or reinvention of uh, General Electric. Well, look, I think the General Electric almost defined the manufacturing age for the United States and that we are now moving into a, a world of increasing focus on services and information and they need to pivot into that new world ahead if they're going to survive. And this is an example of the kind of wrenching transformations that have to happen if companies want to try to succeed. It's not an easy transformation to execute. Are we seeing a move forward here or a move backward? In other words, are we seeing a return to, to General Electric's roots, uh, a paring down of, of the expansion that we'd seen here over the last few years? Well, ironically, in some ways, yes, because they're going to have to focus on some of the businesses where they will have a sustainable edge as a service provider. And, and uh, where are they in particular? Where, where, where do you see this company fitting in going forward? I know that there was some word last week about the calls for the death of the conglomerate. Are we seeing that here? Is that what this portends? I don't necessarily think it's the death of the conglomerate per se. I think it's shifting from a focus on making things like aircraft engines that you sell to somebody else who then is responsible for them to becoming a provider mm-hmm. of aircraft engine hours services that you meter out for your users where you still maintain the engine and are responsible for it. And of course, the challenge is that's a very big change. The skills that are required are different. And at the end of the day, it creates efficiencies for the system. And that actually shrinks the size of the market. I just want to get your perspective before I, I move to, to a broader theme here, just about the, the import of this, how, how big a deal uh, this is. As I mentioned, John Flannery is still relatively new to the job, scheduled to outline radical changes to the companies we've just been discussing. How big a deal is this? Just contextualize the moment for us, uh, if you would. Well, I, I think in the context of the U.S. economy, it's, a, it, it's important, but it's a modest deal because GE is a large employer, but it's a tiny percentage of the U.S. labor force. I think symbolically, though, it does highlight a passing of the baton from great manufacturing being the defining characteristic of the United States to now being a smaller and smaller portion of GDP, just the same way that once upon a time we were an agricultural country, too. Um, Those phase changes are very wrenching and and challenging, but we've gone through them and the challenge is to do that again. All right, so so context there about the company. Let me ask you for some context about this moment in particular. Back in in, in 2012, you forecast we'd see Dow 20,000. Here we are at Dow 23,422. What do you make of, of where we are just from a broad market perspective? I think where we are reflects the fact that corporate earnings have been very strong. Mm. They're growing at about 10% this year. They're forecast to grow at about the same, if not actually slightly more next year, which we'll see. Uh, And actually growth outside the U.S. in corporate earnings is even faster than that. And that's partly because the economy continues to grow at a nice clip, somewhere between two and a half and three in real terms, plus we'll call it a dollop of inflation. So that's about four and a half to five percent nominal growth. And companies have been buying back shares which means that the earnings per share can grow even faster. Uh, this just in, David Gura, uh, Jeff Immelt to coach the New York Giants. Oh, We're looking for that. <laughs> At some point, maybe that'll have, that, that would be good. I mean, he was an God. ace football player at Dartmouth. He could, he could get it done. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Good morning, everyone. 
Seth Masters, you know, I, I look at this, and I guess going back to the import of GE, everybody's got to move faster today. I mean, I made a theme of this three, four, five years ago at Davos, where the new five-year plan is three years. How much time does a guy like Flannery have? You know, not specific to GE, but in general, corporate officers, it's like a one-year, two-year time horizon now, right? It's true. It's It's harder to get investors to be patient for more than a couple of years because their time horizon has shrunk. But on top of that, the pace of the economy as a whole is also accelerating because if you fall asleep for one product cycle, you can really lose your business. And that was not true 20 or 30 years ago. So it's a much less forgiving environment for companies. You just can't make mistakes. How close are you watching what's uh, what's unfolding in Washington, D.C.? The president making his way back from Asia uh, over these next few hours. He'll be uh, greeted by some political controversy on Capitol Hill, of course, but also just uh, the, the, the latest on uh, this tax reform writing process. How much does that matter to you? How much does it matter to the markets right now, how all of this is sorted out here over these next few weeks? Uh, of course it matters. Yeah. Uh, if there is a tax cut, and it's really about tax cuts that we're talking now, um, then in the short run, people might think that that's good for corporations, but that's a one-time benefit if it if it materializes. In the longer run, a big tax cut means much bigger deficits, and that will probably translate into not only more interest rate rises, but actually the need over the next few years to have a tax height to catch back up with those deficits. So I think that there's a lot of concern about that. The, the other thing I mentioned, and it's not on people's radar screens yet, but we're only about three weeks away from the whole debt ceiling. December and, 8th, yes. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, and that, that issue is going to be very gnarly and given the timing may very well interact with this whole tax cut discussion. I think that that is going to be a very messy process. Uh, different than it has been in the past. I mean, we've become so inured to these short-term spending bills and uh, short-term increases of, of the debt ceiling. What's going to make this one different, do you think? Well, I think that some of the problems are really intractable because the Republicans at this point are really committed to a tax cut. They've made that their litmus test, but that actually interferes with a lot of their own program and Exactly how they square the circle, I don't know. Square the circle. Are, are you concerned as a finance investment guy with the build-out of our deficit and debt? I got all the econ guys saying, oh, it's no big deal. You know, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. But I, I just don't buy it. Well, it, it depends on exactly how you build the debt and what you do with it. So if you think about the tax cut that's currently on the table, it's fairly large. And the problem is it's unlikely to produce a lot of demand growth because the corporate tax cut – isn't really focused on the kinds of investment spend that could actually perhaps create more growth. And the, the personal tax cut is focused mostly on very wealthy people whose propensity to consume isn't going to change much as a result of the tax cut. So in both cases, you're not going to get a lot of demand growth. And that isn't good. If you wanted to design a tax reform that was more likely to produce growth, you could have done it, but that's not on the table anymore. Seth, thank you so much. Seth Masters with us, uh, formerly with A.B. Bernstein. Wonderful perspective on growth and value on uh, this bull market. Uh, David, did you did you go to cash this weekend? <laughs> did you, you know, I spent plenty of it. I'm in the triple leveraged all cash there fund, so it's hard to get any more leveraged, you know. Yeah. And do it. I, I could, John Tucker, don't look at me like that. I'm making 1.5% a year because I'm leveraged. <laughs> I was doing the calculations for the new tax. Oh, were you? This is for another 400 <laughs> acres of New Jersey <laughs> swamp? Uh, I'm <clears throat> moving into John McCory's basement. Oh, very good. <laughs> very good. But, you know, I mean, I mean we, we make jokes about it, but, you know, unlike the rest of us who all can't afford to live uh, local, John Tucker, you're living salt, right? Yeah. 
um, and it's it's going to be a big impact if they get rid I of just, the uh, state and local uh, deductions. Just a huge mm-hmm. impact. Just love imagining Tucker by the fire doing his tax calculations. <laughs> Him and Biscuit. <laughs> and the whole biscuit. You and Biscuit. I mean, no H in our block for you, right? No. Biscuit was not happy. Your, your tax return is like, what, four pages, five pages, the way you lie? I, I mean, told it's... the kids I'm going to have to get, uh, I'm going to have to let one of them go. <laughs> good. That's where I was this week. And all very good. Uh, Kevin Cerulli will be with us through the week uh, as we go. Really an important week here. Uh, t- Seth Masters is going, geez, maybe I should move to New Jersey. That would be a good thing. <laughs> good thing. <laughs> Oh, it will be. We're laughing. For those of you around the nation, we are laughing in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. And we say good morning, Bloomberg 960, <laughs> the Bay Area in California, because our taxes are going down, John. <laughs> Some of us. <laughs> Nineteen ninety-seven, Westinghouse disappeared. It was renamed the CBS Corporation, and of course, there was Viacom in there in nineteen ninety-nine, and it was ancient history. How about this headline on General Electric? Bracing for Monday, wither Westinghouse. Mm. Jeffrey Sprague is with Vertical Research Partners. Is uh, Mr. Flannery uh, doing the ghost of Westinghouse, Mr. Sprague? Well, I think he's going to try to avoid that ultimate fate and leave us with uh, something that's left that's called General Electric, but the company's going to end up much smaller than it is today. And, you know, mm-hmm. obviously it's it's the last stock left in the original Dow Jones Industrial Average, and it's, it's not written anywhere on a stone that it has to be there forever. <clears throat> um, what's the organic revenue growth that could be generated off the announcements that you see today? Can he get back to high single digit? Can he actually do a double digit revenue growth? Uh, I, no, I think that's completely out of the question in the near term. I think uh, for the next two or three, maybe four years, there's going to be a lot of pressure in this power business. And, you know, it looks like the way they're reshaping the portfolio, that would be a good third of the portfolio. So I think there's yeah. going to be, a, you know, a fight here to generate, you know, low single-digit organic growth. And ultimately, maybe you can normalize it to mid-singles looking at right. maybe three years or so. One of the great realizations, Jeff, is you know, I use the CFA Institute curriculum of three courses here. There's somewhere in the middle of the second uh, level, two where the clouds part. You realize the biggest mistake is what you thought were variable costs are fixed costs. Does he have the variable cost structure to play with to reduce costs this morning? He's got a lot of fixed costs to deal with. Yeah. So no, it's, it's, this is not an easy variable cost uh, equation. And, you know, we're looking at the company having spent upwards of $12 billion on restructuring and other uh, charges and, and actions here over the last three or four years. And we still have profits under pressure and cash under pressure. So there's, I think they're behind the curve. And I think the other thing, Tom, that's, that's relevant is a lot of this is a symptom of just deflationary pressures in some of their big markets like power, right? So yeah. when price is going down in a big multi-billion dollar market, it, it's hard to get right. ahead of that. David, this is my theme for 2018. I haven't announced it yet, but let's sort of half do it here with Mr. Sprague. Pricing power. We're back to Jack Welch where pricing power and deflationary pressures are tangible. Uh, Jeff, what can we learn from what uh, what uh, the CEO of Siemens said uh, last week about conglomerates? Uh, he declaring them them dead. Uh, is this further confirmation of that as you see it? Well, I think it is. It doesn't mean that we're going to 
uh, distill ourselves down to a bunch of monoline companies, but I think it's very incumbent on these more diversified companies to have a focused diversity, if that's not an oxymoron, right? But, you know, focus on the two or three or maybe four things that you can really do well and be on top of, because there's just, there's not room for mediocrity in this business world. In any any business line, you know, things are moving so quickly. So, you know, you're, if you're a conglomerate, you need to be lean and nimble and on top of the trends in these businesses, or you get uh, disrupted very, very quickly. What's going to happen to this Baker Hughes stake? I gather we're not going to hear much about that today, for at least from what I've seen uh, reported. Uh, but that's certainly something that John Flannery's got to be taking a look at. Yeah, since it already trades, I think what we'll see is at some point there will be a, a split off of the asset as opposed to a spin. So in a split, GE shareholders can elect to swap their GE shares for Baker. This is what they did with Synchrony, the consumer finance business, when they separated that a few years ago. Um, you know, they also did pull some cash out of Baker, you know, a couple of weeks, I guess about a week ago with this share repurchase announcement. So I think they'll try to pull a little bit of cash out of it here in the near term, but then ultimately the, the asset will be separated, likely in a split off. What happens to research and design going forward? This is a company that has been for so many years so innovative, and if we see cost cuts to that, uh, to, to research and development centers around the world, what's that going to mean for GE's future? Well, I think it's going to still be a very important part of what they do. And, you know, what I'm hearing uh, sounds like it could make sense, right, to push that really more into the divisions to make sure the company's investing on investing in things that really have, uh, you know, a, a commercial driver for them, right? And be careful with the blue sky stuff. The blue sky stuff is fine maybe around the edges, but you really want to be investing uh, for yeah. the customer's need and a, a clear vision of the future. What is your signal, Jeff? As we've said, you, you've been more than anyone I know just dead on in your questioning of the income statement. What does it take for you to be a buy? You've got a price target of 20. What does he need to say where you go, whoa, they've drunk the Kool Aid, let's go? Well, you know, I like part of what I'm hearing, just the simplification, I think, is very, very important. Uh, the thing that weighs against that in my mind, Tom, is uh, where you started one of your questions, is just what, how, do, how and where do we grow from here? And, and that's really ultimately going to be what swings my, you know, opinion on the stock, and whether it's today or six months from now when I, you know, watch what they do and, and what they say. But really, uh, I think we have some kind of base being established here, today and the question is right. you know can we grow off that and how do we capitalize that growth how how did we get here was it accounting dreams and hopes do you blame quote unquote blame mr imelt was it just the times what's the negative look back that you have who do you who do you i i guess fault well, I, you know, ultimately you do have to fault uh, Mr. Immelt, who is the chairman of the company and, and the board. I think the the ultimate, uh, you know, the, the 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 main reason we got here, if I was to distill it down into a single factor, is just poor capital deployment, right? I mean, there was just uh, chasing too many things, buying businesses high, selling them low, um, and the cumulative effect of that mismanagement of, of capital just destroys value. And I can remember over the years, you know, they would do something that didn't look too great and people would defend it and say, oh, it's only a, it's only a billion dollars. I mean, that's, that's chump change for GE. Well, you know, for anybody, you know, a billion here, a billion there, it, it starts to add up, right? And the cumulative effect of, of poor investment decisions, particularly in M&A, I think really have brought us to this point. How much time are you giving uh, this new CEO to, to implement all of this? In other words, we're going to get the outline today. 
uh, it sounds like there'll be some intricacy to it. How much time are you and others prepared to give this company to turn things around? Well, you know, uh, I, I don't, I don't determine, uh, you know, how long he stays on the payroll or yeah. anything like that, right? I mean, it's it's going to be my role to, you know, try to be a, a fair judge of, of what he's doing and and determine if if there's an investment case here for my yeah. clients. Uh, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I mean, uh, I actually have not had a positive rating on GE since early '08. Mm-hmm. I downgraded it uh, in that Bear Stearns quarter, if you, if you recall, Q1 of '08. And have never come back. And yeah, but, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, we'll see, we'll, well see what he does. Okay. I'm looking at the financial analyst screen in the Bloomberg, the FA screen. This is GE equity FA for those with a terminal in your car. John, in the Hummer, do you have the terminal with two or four screens in the front seat? Oh, I've got the, the four. The, full the four screens. Probably, yeah. I wanted to be sure of the H2. <laughs> You've got that. Jeff, I got EBITDA of 13%, which is very industrial. Even if they downsize a company, can he stun people to come out with a boosted EBITDA margin today? Or is a, is a pricing up top so weak he can't pull that rabbit out of the hat? I think I don't. I'm not expecting an explicit EBITDA margin forecast today, but that's going to be the premise of where they're going to head with this yes. today is this cost cuts and improve profit profitability, right? And uh, and that's really where the decision point is going to be. I mean, um, right. You know, as, as analysts, we have to be very careful about, uh, you know, gross actions versus, you know, the net exactly. to the bottom line. And, and the net to the bottom line has been very right. challenging with what's going on in these markets. Well, very quickly here, Karen Oblart didn't help me here. She said it was too squishy. Maybe you can be more exact. 229,000 bodies. How many go out the door in the next 36 months? Boy, I don't know. I would say uh, probably upwards of 10% of that count. So twenty, thirty thousand. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, no, yeah, doesn't do it. We have to quote you worldwide <laughs> on Bloomberg News. John Tucker, help me here. Jeff Sprague, twenty or thirty thousand. You can be in that vicinity. Next thirty-six months. You see the silence that we got him. <laughs> Okay, we'll take the silences at Jeff Sprague. Thank you so much for the vertical research. I'm kidding, of course. Vicinity, John. V I C I N. Jeff Sprague, he's been wonderful on General Electric. We really enjoy having Jeff Sprague come on with us on General Electric. There is a firestorm of analysis. Tax Policy Center, Urban Institute of Brookings Institution, preliminary distributional analysis of the Tax Cuts and Job Act. Over at the Center and Budget and Policy Priorities, Sharon Parent writing up Senate tax bill, has same basic flaws as House bill. <laughs> Jared Bernstein joins us. He's the only one that's read five reports, six reports on all this. Of course, he is acclaimed in economics and I would suggest has a liberal bent. He studied under Vice President Biden over the last eight years. Jared, what do you make of this? And I think over the weekend, to me, the critical issue is, is the compare and contrast with 86? Or is it with early Bush, the younger tax reform? What what kind of tax uh, bill yeah. do we have? That's a great way to tee up the analysis. It's very much the latter, very much in the spirit of the of Bush too, and and the key factor that informs that judgment is the fact that 
86, the 1986 tax reform was revenue neutral. Uh, this reform loses at least one and a half trillion. Uh, that's not me talking. That's the Republicans themselves. They wrote one and a half trillion increase in the in the uh, in the ten year deficit numbers into their bill. That's the leeway they've given themselves. And I think one of the frustrating things for many people who are following the debate is they sometimes these folks pose as uh, fiscal hawks, but they're looking more like fiscal chicken hawks, and that's a problem. Jared, let me ask you how much we know about these two pieces of legislation. One is in COIT, the one before the Senate Finance Committee is not a fully fleshed out draft. We do have a draft from uh, the House Ways and Means Committee with some uh, amendments attached uh, to it. I look at what's happened here over these last few weeks. The Tax Policy Center having to issue mea culpa as it does some analysis of uh, that legislation. Then we see the Tax Foundation doing the same thing. So both of these institutions trying to get a read on what's in this legislation and, mm-hmm. and what it means. How much do we know and how difficult is it to feel all-knowing here as we uh, move at such a break-neck clip here to Thanksgiving and to Christmas? Uh, another important and piercing question. Um, we actually know uh, quite a bit about the legislation, about the proposal itself, especially in the House, where we've got 400 pages of, of, of tax changes, largely cuts. I think the thing that we don't know, and where you see the dueling models causing some trouble, in my view, is that people have all kinds of ideas about dynamics of such models. How much will will they pay for themselves? How much economic growth will they generate to offset their costs. And if you're someone who supports the plan, you're naturally going to be attracted to a model that uh, I would view as, as pretty heavily juiced in that regard. So you'll, you'll find a model that says, oh, this is going to unleash tremendous growth. But if you dig into the assumptions of those models, you'll find that historically, that just hasn't been the case. Tax cuts, I'm not saying they never pay for some portion of themselves, but it tends to be quite small. Let me ask you just for, for your perspective on, on where we go from, from here. Uh, it looks like there are still some fairly big issues that need to be hammered out here this week, next week, however many weeks uh, it takes. Uh, the longer this takes, does it, does, it, does it lessen the likelihood that we're going to see a piece of legislation passed? Yes, I would say that one thing the Republicans learned from the health care debate is that time is their enemy. The more this sits out there, the more uh, people are going to fight over... The, uh, some of the changes, some of the pay-fors that ding various groups who've benefited from deductions yeah. that they're taking away. Yeah. Uh, Jared, quickly here, we've got to get to some General Electric headlines. Paul Krugman, I thought, was brilliant over the weekend on truly his wheelhouse, which is international economics and complex dynamics. Is the fault of the politicians, and no fault of theirs, but it's just the reality that they're doing a domestic closed border, closed economy analysis, mm-hmm. and the reality is we're working in a massive wide-open international economy. That's really important, especially regarding that last comment I made about uh, the dynamics, because the way you get the juiced models and the big growth effects is by assuming really strong capital flows into this country, and the models discount the impact of that on trade deficits. Uh, So uh, a much more realistic view uh, would show that, uh, no, they're not going to come anywhere yeah. close to paying for uh, all but a fraction of their cost. Yeah, never enough time. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your work. He, of course, is Senior Fellow, Center in Budget and Policy uh, Priorities. Why don't you bring in our next victim, 
uh, in Merger Derby. Yes, Merger Derby. Ed Hammond joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios now. Great to have you here. You're looking at Qualcomm uh, and, and Broadcom in particular. Let's start with just a basic question here. Uh, Broadcom had, had uh, offered or said it intended to buy uh, Qualcomm. What is Broadcom at this point? What's it looking to do? It's looking to almost double in size, okay. which, is, which is actually quite scary when you look at how big this thing is to begin with. So the what we call the enterprise value, obviously the, the sort of value of the company plus the debt is $130 billion, I think, is what they would be paying for Qualcomm. So you're putting together two of the biggest companies in the chip-making space, and obviously semiconductor chips are in pretty much everything we use these days. Um, the interesting thing for Broadcom is Broadcom is a sort of acquisition machine. This mm-hmm. is a company that, you know, Hock Tan, the chief exec, has gone out, he's bought and bought and bought, always through friendly deals. And this time, not only is this shaping up for a very big hostile, they went in hostile. They didn't approach the company behind the scenes and say, hey, guys, you want to dance? They just went straight over the top and said, you know what? We know you don't want to dance, but maybe your shareholders <laughs> do. Qualcomm rejecting this this overture. Let's talk about the, the what, what Broadcom's been up to recently, just a couple of weeks back. Uh, looking in the Oval Office, we saw Haktan visiting with the president, announcing he intends to move uh, Broadcom's world headquarters to, to the U.S., to who knows uh, where. What does this say about the regulatory landscape and its approach to, to deal-making? Yeah, what an unbelievable coincidence, yeah. right? They're in the White House <laughs> one then, and they're announcing a big hostile the next. Um, look, what it says is that, I think, well, two things. Bro- Broadcom obviously knew that this is, this is going to be a hugely sensitive deal from not only a regulatory point of view, but also just from the point of view of, you know, this is a big U.S. company being put together with another big U.S. company. If he, if they had been still an overseas company, Singapore domiciled, then that would have potentially been something that Qualcomm could have uh, uh, could have used to, to get it blocked. That's right where I wanted to go. This is not two U.S. companies, right? Technically, since their little <laughs> yeah, since the Tea Party at Michael the White Shaw, House, I guess it is. But you're right; it's not. Michael Shaw, come on! I mean, so you change the name. Broadcom's a sort of strange beast, you know. It's it's certainly Singapore controlled, but it, thank you. But but Broadcom, it's called Broadcom because it bought Broadcom, so that was a U.S. Yeah. company. Uh, GE plunging now nineteen point eight eight. That's a real drop down here. Oof. Going comment by comment on Flaring again nineteen dollars sixty, I believe five cents is where it was November second. I, I I'm sorry to get this going. I'm I'm in I, I'm I'm looking at GE. It's sad. But, Ed, it's not Broadcom. It's not. Right? A U.S. company? It's not even Broadcom. They no, it's not even. Out, bro, 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 Broadcom is sort of, it's a weird company, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, at what point does the company stop becoming the company? Because it's just gone out and bought other companies. It's a sort of, you know, whatever, a patchwork of different businesses with a weird domicile structure and weird ownership structure. It, but, David, it's like tapestry. Tapestry's coach. Evident what is tapestry? tapestry? There you go. You saved me, David. No, I'm sorry right. about this. <laughs> Where do things go from here? Let me just close out with yet on this. Uh, we have Qualcomm rejecting this bid from Broadcom, which is the least surprising thing of the day. Least the surprising thing for the yeah, of course. So, so what happens next, and and what does this mean for Broadcom as it continues to I don't know weave. Well, look, I, I, I don't want to make it more complicated, but let's just do it anyway. Yeah. So, so Qualcomm are in the process of buying a Dutch company called NXP, okay. which is another huge company in the space. They're paying around $40 billion. They could potentially throw another, let's say, $10 billion at that to try and effectively use it as a poison pill. So they would say, look, now as a combined business, we're so ridiculously overvalued that Broadcom can't come in and buy us. If they do that, I think their shareholders rightly will go okay. bananas. Ed, Ed Hammond, thank you so much for the update on Broadcom Qualcomm. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews 
on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.